You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Matt Abrahams, who is a lecturer at Stanford University Graduate School of Business, also, I think, in the School of Continuing Studies with a bunch of different classes. He's an award-winning instructor on communications and uh, is also the author of this book right here called Think Faster, Talk Smarter, which builds, I think, on a lot of the conversations that you've had as part of your Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast. So I'm always excited when I can host a podcast host because I know that <laughs> you know what the whole point of this is. And also you wrote a couple of years ago, a book called Speaking Up Without Freaking Out. You've also been a high school English teacher. Is that right? Worked for various tech firms. And so you've got a wonderful background. Welcome, Matt. Greg, thank you so much. I'm excited to continue the conversation you and I had on my podcast. So this will be fun. It's a little bit, is that incestuous or is this like a new thing? Podcast hosts? Hosting? Yeah, maybe just podcast hosts interviewing podcast hosts and, and then it'll all just implode one day. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, look, you've talked in the numerous occasions about how important communication is, right? Now, when I was in business school, we had a little tiny course on communication that was non-credit. And I guess it was because it was considered not real academic work, right? It wasn't really about learning about, but learning how. I guess it was, you know, techne instead of logos. And so it wasn't considered to be a serious topic. But you talk about how many people have seen their careers completely derailed or affected by their discomfort, right, with communicating. And a lot of them have said, well, I'm just not that kind of person, right? And in fact, when I cold call on people in my class, I've gotten a lot of feedback where people say, hey, listen, this is not fair to the introverts, right? Because you're expecting them to compete against the extroverts when they have a disadvantage. And I think part of your message is that better communication is something that can be learned, right? And requires some practice, but it also requires a bit of a shift in your mindset, starting with, you know, your attitude and embracing the fact that it is challenging, but that you can overcome those challenges. So I guess the first question is, why is it that people, or at least academics, fail to appreciate how important communication is, even though they are doing communication all the time and, you know, workshops and seminars and Q&A and so forth? You know, communication is often seen as a necessary evil. It's just something that we have to do to get our ideas across. And I, of course, have a very different view on it. I think communication is essential and critical. It's how we connect. It's how we engage. I actually believe communication is operationalized leadership when it comes to the work you and I do at business schools. So I see it as fundamental and critical to success, not just in our professional lives, but our personal lives. I think part of the reason that people don't focus on it as much as we've been doing it for a long, long time. You know, since the age of one, we've been communicating and some argue even before that. And so the, the point becomes, it's something that we feel like we know how to do, yet we all know people who do it really well and people who don't do it as well. And we've all seen people who, who might be incredibly bright with great ideas and who just aren't able to articulate them. So I believe it's one, critical to study. And there is a whole academic discipline behind communication, but also it's something that we have to practice and encourage others to practice. So it's not just something we study, it's something we have to learn. 
And we can learn. That's the other thing is you can get better at communication. Many of the people I work with have some pretty dramatic stories that have led them to where they are in their communication. And yet through work, through practice, they can improve. Now, this latest book, it's really about spontaneous communication. So I think a lot of people, when they think about communicating, they think about presentations, right? And they think about pitches. And I've done a lot of coaching for founders who are doing pitches at accelerators or whatever. And sometimes they will rehearse these pitches and they will memorize a set of phrases. And the problem there, of course, is that the minute they get derailed off that sequence of words or they get disrupted with a series of questions, and I'll have this happen with my students in their final projects, if I just interrupt them one minute in, then the whole thing just completely falls apart, right? And so, I mean, is the art of spontaneous communication something distinct from this rehearsed communication? I mean, I was telling you before the podcast started that this summer I had to record a bunch of these asynchronous videos for my online class that is starting in the fall. And they use teleprompters, right? And they wanted me to type out every single word. And then I had to read it off the teleprompter. And for me, this was incredibly difficult. Like, this is not how I present. You know, I'm throw a few bullet points up and I'll just kind of make it work. Are these different skills? Is it like fast twitch and slow twitch muscles? Or is there a correlation? Like, if you're good at one, you're good at the other. I actually like that analogy of fast and slow twitch muscles because they are similar, but they are different, right? So most of us, if we've ever spent any time learning and thinking about our communication, it is often in a planned situation. We're pitching, we're running a meeting, we're presenting. Most of our communication, though, happens in the moment. It's Q&A, it's giving feedback, it's small talk, it's making a mistake and having to correct it. It's your boss saying, hey, would you introduce this person? So a lot of our communication happens spontaneously. And while some of the foundational principles, I believe, are the same, there are some very specific skills that you have to practice. Some mental, it's about mindset, but some also about the way you structure and craft the communication that are different in a spontaneous situation. And I have been in the same circumstance you described, Greg, where you're asked to be scripted. I've given a couple TED talks or TEDx talks, and there's a pressure to be memorized, mostly because they want to make sure timing and if they've got cameras and scripting on the stage. And it's incredibly hard for me to do that. Incredibly hard. I am at my most nervous when I have to memorize. And in fact, I discourage people from memorizing because of the anxiety that it can produce. And it also, I mean, sometimes it's very difficult to do something that's scripted and at the same time feel authentic, right? And not only for you to feel authentic, but it comes through, right? Where where people see, oh, this seems really scripted, right? So I was fortunate enough to interview Joan London, the journalist. And in our conversation, she shared with me the perfect way of capturing what you said. The goal is connection, not perfection. And that is really true in communication. We have a lot of research that says being warm and immediate with the people you're talking to makes a big difference, more so than the 100% accuracy of what you intended to say. So yeah, you're right. People sense it. People sense when you're reading and memorized versus not. The big example I always use is when my kids were in elementary school and the teachers found out what I did, they'd always say, well, you come help our kids because all they do is they literally recite everything word for word, just as it was. 
And it sounds robotic, it's disconnected, and it's not the way we interact in reality. Well, you know, you made some analogies to sports, and I like this. I teach a course on strategy, which comes at the very end of the core in the MBA program. And at Berkeley, we're not really big on cases in most of our classes. It's not like the Harvard approach. And so by the time the students get to this final class, they haven't had a lot of cold calling, right, compared to, say, at Harvard. And so they're very uncomfortable. And, you know, they say, hey, look, I'd really appreciate it if you would just tell us ahead of time you're going to call on us, right? You know, we want the warm call and so forth. And so the analogy I use is that in those other classes, it's more like drills, right? When you are preparing for a football game, you will like tackle the dummy, tackle the dummy, tackle the dummy, run an out route, run an out route. But you don't have to necessarily respond in the moment to what's the defender doing (laughs) or like, you know, the quarterback stumbles or whatever. And when you're doing cold call type interaction, that's when it's closer to being like a real game. It's like a real practice and not like a series of drills. And so when we're thinking about communication, is the best way to prepare for that to do like drills, to maybe practice this form of spontaneous interaction in low pressure environments so that you feel more comfortable in the high pressure environments? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have been a martial artist for over 40 years, and I have learned that the best way to get good at it is through practice, through simulation. We have to drill what we're doing, but we also have to have the right approach and mindset as well. But in terms of practice, you know, I use instead of football, American football references, I I use basketball and soccer because I spent time coaching my kids in those very poorly, by the way. But You're dribbling around cones all the time. Why? So that when you're in the actual game and there's a defender there, you have some comfort with it. You are able to be more agile. And so that's what's required in spontaneous speaking. And there are lots of ways to do drills. One is put yourself in an environment where you can do it and have it be supportive. I'm a huge fan of Toastmasters. Toastmasters is a great organization for learning communication skills. Part of what they teach people is planned communication. You do speeches. But you also do what they call table topics, which are impromptu speaking. You can use generative AI. I know all of us in academics are trying to figure out how that fits in. A great way to use generative AI is to have your students, or if you're in the corporate world, interviewing, for example, go to generative AI like ChatGPT, say, give me five interview questions for a company of this type in this role, and it will generate questions and then practice answering them, not to memorize the answers, but to drill yourself doing that kind of thing. So absolutely practice is important. Well, you also have experience with improv, right? And I didn't know a whole lot about improv until, I guess, until I came out to California. And I think it's pretty big out here. And, you know, I have a colleague who is big into improv here at Berkeley. And I think the whole essence of improv is that you're constantly being moved off your mark, right? You know, you're constantly forced to do something in the moment Do we tend to have a higher opinion of people who are able to respond in the moment? In other words, for stand-up comedians, do we evaluate stand-up comedians differently than, say, we evaluate a comedian who is working from a script? And if we find out that the stand-up comedian has basically done the same thing 30 times in a row, do we lose some respect for them? I mean, is there something that we are subconsciously testing for, right, when we run people through these sort of tests of their capacity to respond in the moment. So I know of no research that talks about, do we have some kind of affinity for those who are spontaneous in their humor versus those who aren't? But 
I think what we really prize and admire are people who are in the moment connected to us, making things relevant and salient in the moment. And good stand-up comedians do that. I think good leaders do that. I think good friends do that. So there's something about being immediate, being warm, being open and listening that I think work well. In the book, I interview a comedian. He is a younger comedian. His humor might not sit well with you and me, but he's great. His name's Trevor Wallace. And he and I talked about how he actually looks for and seeks out the heckler or what's happening in the room so he can take it and use it and move forward with it. And to me, that's wonderful because a lot of us, we hide from that spontaneity, but here he is seeking it out and leveraging it and, and embellishing it and, and rejoicing in it. Now, he does have great experience with improvisation, and I think improv is an amazing way to treat yourself and teach yourself to being present in the moment. Just like we talked about drilling things, improv is a great way to do it. Most of us think of improv as we have to be funny on the spot, and that's not what improv is about at all. Improv is just about being present and responding to what's needed. And I have had some great mentors. I I co-teach a class for Stanford Continuing Studies with a fellow colleague of ours at Stanford, Adam Tobin, who's a master of this and has taught me a lot about how we can be in the moment, be responsive, follow the rules of improv. And people are like, they're rules of improv? They're absolutely our rules. And that's what makes it so successful. So I think there's a lot to learn. And I think it's all about being in the moment and responsive. Now, you don't use the term authenticity a lot in this book, right? And I'm wondering, can you have too much authenticity, right? I mean, our colleague, Jeff Pfeffer, <laughs> I think he would say, hey, you need to look at each of these opportunities as an opportunity for some kind of strategic goal, right? To accomplish some strategic goal. And I've certainly been in situations where I've gone in without saying, okay, here's what I need to get out of this. And I just say, hey, I'm just going to go in and have a conversation. And it's oftentimes backfired, right? Because I didn't think, okay, I need to really impress this person, or I really need to make this person feel important, or I really need to... You know, so to what extent do you need to really remind yourself of the point of the conversation? I had a bunch of friends that went through media training. And in media training, they always tell politicians and business leaders, ignore whatever question you're asked and answer the question that you came in <laughs> you know, prepared to ask. So convert your answer into a kind of prepared statement. Can you err too far in the direction of authenticity? So authenticity is a big topic in the field of communication and psychology, et cetera. And I do believe that by being present and in the moment and listening and responding as you feel appropriate is a way of demonstrating authenticity. But I don't know that the dichotomy you're setting up is really what I support. I think you can go in and be strategic and have goals and still be spontaneous. So when I go into a small talk situation, the epitome of freestyle communication in the moment. I do have goals. It's like, I would like to meet two or three people, or I'd like to socialize this idea. So I have intentions. I don't have a script about how I'm going to do it. I am open to what happens, but I have a goal. You know, I'm a big fan of having goals. I think a goal has three parts. No, feel, do. You should say, what is it I want people to know? How do I want them to feel? What is it I might want them to do? as an intention going into a spontaneous speaking situation. But I don't do as politicians and and some business leaders are coached to just morph everything to my goal. I think that leads to some of this disingenuous interaction that you were mentioning earlier. So 
I think it is possible to be goal-driven. I think it is possible to be authentic and yet at the same time, spontaneous and adjust and adapt. But that comes with practice and a little bit of letting go of the pressure we put on ourselves to do these things so right. And it's that pressure that can also make it feel artificial and inauthentic. Yeah. And I think one of the steps that you talk about, and you have these six steps at the beginning of the book, and one of them is to kind of give up on perfection. And I think that's one of the big obstacles I think that people have at the beginning of their careers. And then once you realize, hey, this is not the only time you'll have to shine, right? There'll be plenty of opportunities for you to shine, then you get over it. But that perfection seems to block a lot of people from even opening their mouths. Absolutely. And you might appreciate this more than some of your listeners because you teach MBA students. I start my very first class partway through. I tell everybody that the goal is to strive for mediocrity. And these Stanford MBA, I mean, their jaws drop, right? Nobody in their lives has ever told them strive for mediocrity. And I say, stick with me, stick with me. We do some activities to get to this point. But essentially, The pressure we put ourselves to communicate right. And by the way, I've been doing this for decades. There is no one right way to communicate. There are better ways and worse ways, but no one right way. And when you put pressure on yourself to do it right, however you define that, you actually almost guarantee you will do it more poorly. Why? Your brain is like a computer. It's not a perfect analogy, but for this, it works. You only have so much processing power. You only have so much bandwidth. And if part of your bandwidth is being exercised by evaluating what you're doing as you're doing it the entire time you're doing it, you have less bandwidth to actually focus on what you're saying. So I'm not saying we don't judge and evaluate our communication. You must. But if we can turn that volume down a little bit and just allow ourselves to do what comes naturally, we will typically do better because we have more bandwidth to focus on what we're doing. So the full saying by the end of that first class, I tell my students, is strive for mediocrity so you can achieve greatness. And they get it. They get the logic after we do these activities in this discussion. But the pressure we put on ourselves is so much that it gets in the way of being effective at all. And you've seen that, Greg. I'm sure you have cold called on a student who you know knows the answer and just can't articulate it well, probably because they're judging. And and the other factor is anxiety, which factors into this, too. That that gets in the way. Well, I mean, although the book is really about how to be a more effective communicator, you you spend some time in the book talking about being the communicatee, right? Because if you're having a conversation, you know, you're playing both roles and you can become a better communicatee. And so going back to this idea of perfection, how important is it to create an environment that allows people to be more relaxed and more comfortable. I mean, in my classroom, the biggest problem I have communicating at the beginning is, hey, we're all here (laughs) to support each other. We're not here to tear each other down. How important is it to make that clear to the people that you are communicating with, that you're not all about tearing them down? You want to open them up and get them to feel more comfortable communicating with you. Absolutely. I mean, we're both familiar with the literature on psychological safety and people feeling comfortable to allow them to share what's important to them. And for me, what motivates all the work I do, be it podcasting, writing, teaching, is to really help people find their voices and hone their voices so we can hear from them on their opinions. I firmly believe that we need to hear from as many people as we can to make good decisions. So it is incumbent on those of us in leadership roles, those of us who are teachers, parents, to set up environments where people feel comfortable. And what that means is to, one, encourage people speaking, to listen when they speak, and to make sure that you 
surprise people exploring ideas. So you don't shut them down. You don't make people feel bad when they make mistakes. We have to actually set those environments up. And it is incumbent on all of us in positions of status and power to do that. And you do that partially by saying it, but more importantly, by demonstrating it. So that means in a meeting, you don't necessarily lead with your opinion first. That means you paraphrase that demonstrate you've heard what somebody says. It doesn't mean you agree, but at least that you've heard. It means that you give voice and space for those who are more introverted or shy or nervous to come forward and find ways that maybe allow them to do that. Maybe you partner people up in small groups and then have the group represent what was said rather than having one individual who might be nervous to do it. So there are lots of things that we can do to set up an environment that encourages people to communicate appropriately. And one more thing I'll add, we also have to take time to reflect on our own communication, encourage others to do so. A best practice I encourage my students and the people I coach to do is at the end of a meeting, spend 30 seconds to a minute commenting on the quality of the communication, not what was said, but how it was said. So I might say, Greg, you know, it was great how you paraphrased that point that Jeff made before you added yours. That really helped me get focused again. That shows that you're paying attention. That shows that you're putting a value on communication and it can really move the needle in helping people. Yeah, I mean, I think soliciting feedback is important. I uh, recently had this experience. I was teaching one of my classes. I think this was last year or so. And I try to put humor into my class. But, you know, humor is, there's always the, the risk, you know, that somebody finds it not as funny as you do. And so I would always make jokes about typewriters and DVDs and Betamax because I'm usually the oldest person in the room. So I always feel like, oh, well, at least I can make fun of people who remember typewriters, because I'm probably the person that's going to remember them the most. And so recently, there's one student in my class who was basically my age, right? He was in an executive MBA class. And he came up to me and he said, hey, you know, like, I didn't find that very funny. And I was like, whoa, what's going on here? And so apparently he had experienced age discrimination in the workplace. And, you know, initially I was like, oh, you know, come on, like, don't let this thing bother you. But then we had this wonderful conversation and as a result, I changed the way I talked about those topics, even though I don't expect to ever see anyone else who is as old as me in, in the classroom. It really opened my eyes to think about how certain things that could go wrong. I mean, how do you make a lecture type environment more like a conversation? I mean, you can't, you're not going to be interacting with every single person in the room, but I like to think that every communication opportunity is sort of like a conversation. I, I 100% agree with that. I have some ideas about how to make a, a lecture or a meeting more engaging. But before I do that, I have been in that circumstance too, where I have said something either in service of trying to be funny or in terms of trying to teach something that ended up offending people. And one of the, so my book has two parts. One is a methodology that you mentioned in the first part. And then the second part is taking very common spontaneous speaking situations and giving advice and guidance based on academics research about how to manage those. And one of them is apologizing. And that whole chapter was created based on a situation that you defined. So I often talk about using numbers in communication data. Data are important. I know you teach a lot about data, but I often encourage people to put data in context so we can really understand it. So an example I use is, is I coach somebody, a very senior leader at a very well-known bank, and I talked about the bank name. And I said, he said how much money goes through that bank every day. It's an astronomical number. 
And I asked him to make it more relatable, give it context. And he said, it's roughly 25% of the world's money. And I had a student in the class who was often incredibly engaged, incredibly contributive, and he just shut down and he looked really pissed. So at the end of the class, I went to him and I said, what's going on? It turns out that very bank foreclosed on his family's home and he did not have a favorable view, to say the least, of this bank. I had meant no offense, but I had clearly offended him. And in that moment, I needed to apologize. And that's what motivated that chapter. That's what made me realize how sometimes we apologize on the spot. So that struck a chord when you use that example with me. I also realized that you can't vet every example you use as a teacher, but I think that's one way you make things more conversational is you use examples, you include people's voices, you engage them by asking them to do something. If you think of a conversation, it is a two-way street. Lecturing tends to be one way. So the question becomes, how can you engage others to make it more conversational? You can do it through activity, have it people in small groups, taking polls, You can do it through language by using inclusive language like you, us, we, that kind of thing. So there are lots of things we can do to make them feel more conversational. But we as teachers, we as meeting facilitators, we need to let go of getting through all the material because when you do those engagement techniques, things can go down different paths. And that's where being able to speak spontaneously helps because you can adjust and adapt as the conversation unfolds. Yeah, but I noticed that in that example, you sensed that something was wrong. So you were using your kind of sixth sense, right? And you talk a little bit about this, right? How you need to be able to read a room or read the person that you're talking to. And a lot of it's body language, a lot of it's eye contact. And I've been in situations where I'll be giving a lecture and I I noticed that there's something funky here, right? Like I'm either speaking uh, above their level or below their level, or I'm not making the right references and I need to pivot in the moment. But the problem is that people aren't always going to give you the feedback that you need. I've discovered this in teaching that I was teaching actually at Stanford recently. And on my evaluations at the end, they were like, the due dates on the assignments were all confusing and this sucked. And I was like, well, why did anybody ever say anything? Like, I'm there the whole, no one, the whole semester, no one came up and said, hey, you know what? Like, these due dates or what the heck's going on? And I think of that as a failure on my part. Like, I didn't do enough to get that feedback. So do you think that people are very shy about giving feedback? Do you, do you have to work extra hard to get it? Yes. <laughs> in, a, in a word, yes. When you are in a position of power and status, I think you do have to work hard to get feedback. I'm not sure if you've talked with Kim Scott before, but Kim Scott of Radical Candor, she's a neighbor, actually. She's become a friend, and I've interviewed her on Think Fast, Talk Smart. And she says, before you can give good feedback, you have to solicit good feedback, and we have to act to do that. There are many reasons students in lower status and power situations don't want to give feedback, so we have to set environments up that allow it. Maybe it's anonymous. Maybe it's mid-quarter, mid-semester. We take a pulse of what's going on. But the same thing happens to me where students at the end feel comfortable sharing when during would have helped. And that happens true. I think to part of it is we have to ask. And when we ask, we have to be very specific. We don't just say, how are things going? Because it's too easy to say, well, or good or fine. I think we have to say, with regard to the pacing of assignments and due dates, is there anything that could be changed that would make your life better? or easier. And with the specificity of that question and and done in a way that doesn't feel threatening, I think that can help. That sixth sense you talked about, it is body language. It is looking for patterns. I think it's pattern recognition. When something doesn't fit in the pattern, that should cue us into 
things are might be uh, amiss and we should d- dive into it. One of our colleagues at Stanford's Business School, his name's Collins Dobbs, and he has this wonderful structure for what he calls crucial high stakes communications. He calls it pace, space, and grace. And I asked him if I could borrow that to talk about listening, because I think it is the perfect way of thinking about how we can listen better. And and part of what you're talking about when you talk about observing things to tell if there's feedback is really listening, but not just to the words said, but how it's said, where it's said, et cetera. So pace is about slowing things down. We often run so fast and are constantly in motion all the time. We have to slow things down to really listen and observe. We have to give ourselves space. Sometimes it's physical space, like move to a place where you can listen better, but also mental space. We have to allocate part of the interaction to actually paying attention and not just listening to what our mind is racing with. And then finally, we need to give ourselves grace and permission to listen to our intuition, permission to take a risk and ask, is this is something amiss here? So we have to listen better to have that sixth sense. And we also have to make sure that we have environments that allow people to give feedback to us. I should mention that you have a lot of mnemonics in this book and they're wonderful. But, you know, the thing that I really got most out of this book is this whole idea about story structure, right? And it made me really think about my communications because I never really give any explicit attention to the story structure, although all of my sort of talks and presentations, they have some story structure. And I think even experienced communicators would benefit from picking apart the structure of what it is that they're doing. It's kind of like, you know, before you study Latin or a foreign language, you don't really know what the heck the subjunctive is. <laughs> you don't really think about that. But then you come back to your own native language and you see it in a fresh light. So I was wondering, for story structure, you're not a screenplay writer. You're not a novelist, at least as far as I know. So how did you get so interested in story structure? Does this go back to your days as a high school English teacher? Actually, interestingly, it it does. So when I left high tech, I I worked in high tech for a decade and had the ability to go back and teach. And I'm passionate about teaching. And, And so I taught high school for two years. And as part of that, I coached a speech and debate team. I had done speech and debate in high school. I was sort of drafted, if you will, by a a freshman English teacher. And it was a sort of a quick way to get certain credits done. So I, I went for it. But when I was coaching, there are two events in competitive speech and debate. And for some people listening in, they're like, that's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. And two of those events are spontaneous events. There's what's called impromptu speaking and extemporaneous speaking. So impromptu speaking is You literally get a topic, you get three minutes to prepare, and then you start speaking. Extemporaneous is you get a topic that's a little bigger and you get a half hour to prepare and they expect you to to pull in some research and data. In both those cases, what helps students, and I, I, my job was to teach the beginners how to do this and people would flail because all they would do is just list facts. And, And our brains are not wired for lists and bullet points. Bullets kill, don't kill your audience with bullet points. So I started looking for ways to do this. And as somebody who is teaching English and teaching literature and poetry, there are structures all over the place. And at the same time, I had just come from a high tech career where I had to learn how to code. I was a psychology major and a communications grad student. I didn't know how to code. This is back in the day where coding was something some people did. It wasn't like it is today. And I had learned in coding that structure helps. I learned in poetry that structure helps. And here I was trying to help these kids and it 
clicked, hey, there's a lot of structure here. And I, then I started diving deeper into structure and there's structures all over the place. So I didn't create these structures. Well, some I did for in the book, but the idea of structure helping communication is nothing new. I just really became fixated on it, trying to help 14, 15 year old boys and girls learn how to speak better spontaneously. Well, the structure that I like the most is the one that you spend the most time on, which is the what, so what, now what structure. Yes, my favorite, my favorite. Is it the Swiss army knife of structure? You can use it in almost any environment, right? And so do you have this sort of operating in the background or do you actually consciously, when you're entering into an interaction, say, okay, now I got to do the what, so what, now what? So I have become pretty well practiced in a variety of structures. So it's not running in the foreground for me, but it used to, and it will for anybody learning it. So the what, so what, now what structure, three simple questions. What, so what, now what? You start with the what, that's your idea, your product, your service, your belief. The so what is, why is it important to the person or people you're talking to? And then the now what is what comes next? Maybe you take questions, maybe you ask them to sign on the dotted line, maybe you do a demonstration. But by packaging information up that way, it really helps you as the communicator to focus your message and it helps the audience to receive the message and to remember the message. In preparing for the book, I interviewed several neuroscientists and all of them said, our brains are wired for story, for structure. Our brains do not do well with chaos. We make up story where story doesn't exist. It's because that's the way the brain best works. So when you package information, it helps. So let me give you two examples, Greg, really quickly of this structure. First, if you're writing emails, I don't know about you, but I get emails that are very complex and convoluted. The subject line can be the now what, that's what you want the person to do. And then the body is the what and the so what. If you were to ask me for feedback, I could give you feedback. The what is my feedback? I could say, Greg, your podcast is fantastic. I really love how you give this information. And then the so what is why it's important. When you paraphrase the things that I say, it really helps solidify for me the importance. And then the now what is what I'd like you to do, either keep doing or, or to change. I could say, please definitely keep paraphrasing and connecting your questions together. So what now what is a structure for giving feedback? So I encourage everybody to use it. And the way you practice using it is when you listen to a podcast, stop it and say, what was that about? Why was it important? What do I take away from it? When you read something at the end of it, say, what was it about? How can I benefit? And what am I going to do with this information? So what, so what, now what is a powerful way? And I encourage everybody to use it. And now the last thing I'll say is I'm going to get a little meta on you. I just answered your question using what, so what, now what? I told you what it was, why it was important. And I encouraged you to use it. So it is a tool you can use in many different circumstances. And so a lot of times these things can get formulaic, right? I mean, to what extent do you want to add a twist to it, right? You know, I was asked recently to give a speech at a wedding, right? So you actually mentioned this in, in the book as a potential opportunity to utilize. Coasts in the moment. Yeah, it happens a lot. Yeah. And so, you know, I did not want to over-prepare because I think over-preparation can be the kiss of death. And I remember when I first started lecturing, coming out of grad school and, you know, I had to get up in front of a class and I had, I think, 150 people. It was like a core class. And I wanted to make sure that I had everything lined up. And so my slides were super detailed and I was like reading off the slides and I was super nervous that somebody would ask me a question that I didn't know the answer to. And over the years, I've learned that the best way to prepare is to not over-prepare. So I decided, all right, for this thing, I'm not going to overthink it. I'm just going to have a couple bullet points going and then got up and gave the talk and it was very successful. 
but I tried to make sure that it was something that was memorable in the sense that it had a very clear message and story, but that it was also something that caught people a little bit off guard, right? A little bit surprising, right? To make sure that it really stuck. And when I talk to students who've graduated, who've had like 10, 20 years ago, they always just remember these really crazy stories, you know? And they don't really remember anything else. They just remember the, the stories, but every story has sort of a, a message. And I think that's what Abe Lincoln, when people talk about Abe Lincoln, they always just recount his, I mean, not the speeches, of course, but also these like little, I don't know, parables or allegories that he would tell people, right? Absolutely. So that again reinforces our brains are wired for story. We remember story better. I interviewed David Eagleman. He's a very well-known neuroscientist. And he, I love the image. And this is an example of a story. He said, if you think of the very first Star Wars movie that you and I saw, because we are of the age when we saw what is now number four, Luke Skywalker is going down that channel and he shoots that, whatever it is, that laser photon bomb thingy. And it goes into that porthole and blows up the Death Star. David says that bomb thing that he shot is a story. And what happens when it hits the brain is it just ignites it and your brain explodes when it hears a story. And that's why we remember stories. So very important. Now, that notion of these things sounding scripted, a structure is not a script. A structure is a roadmap. A roadmap helps you get from one place to the next, but you can take diversions. You can take different routes, but you're still going from one place to the next. And that's what a structure does. So structure is not about memorizing and hitting certain points. It's about directionality. And that can be helpful. And I'm not saying every communication needs to be structured in this way, but for people who are nervous and are novice to the particular circumstances they're in, having a structure helps you get through that communication. When we have to communicate in any circumstance, but especially spontaneously, we have two fundamental challenges, what to say and how to say it. The structure, if you rely on one, tells you how to say it. So all you have to do is put the what you are saying into the structure. It halves your burden and that allows you to do better. So having structures for different circumstances really is helpful. Now, some of the things that people are talking right now about shortening attention spans. And when I was putting together this online course, I was told by the administrators, hey, you want to keep your videos down to like three minutes. You don't want to have like a 10 minute video. But I feel like if you're telling a compelling enough story, <laughs> you should be able to capture people's attention for a longer period of time. Is there any optimal kind of length that you think is appropriate for interactions? I mean, when it's a conversation... If you're dealing with someone who's a better listener or worse listener, do you then adjust your back and forth according to their capacity to sustain attention or their curiosity in, in what it is that you're talking about? So absolutely, I think we need to adjust in the moment to what we're seeing or the feedback we think we're receiving, for sure. Structure helps you be more concise. One of the clear values of structure is that it helps us focus. I have a whole chapter in the book, I call it the F word of communication, that's focus. and Structure helps you focus your messages. And you're right. I mean, to me, attention is the most precious commodity we have in the world today. And our attention is constantly pulled in different directions. So anything that makes us more concise and what we say more memorable within reason is important. So structure helps. In terms of how long should one speak, that's really hard to tell. You're reading signs and clues and you have to adjust and adapt. Now, we as academics are probably some of the biggest violators of talking too much. So this is something, and I know I suffer from this, 
my wife and my two teenagers, I get a lot of constructive feedback. And one is you talk about concision, but you should do so more concisely. My mother has this wonderful saying. So it's, it even goes back to my mother teaching me this. She has this saying, tell me the time, don't build me the clock. And I think a lot of us academics are, are clock builders. And then the other thing my wife always reminds me of is that I could get better at listening. Even though I teach listening skills, she says, you know, you still need to work on that one. Right. Now, of course, at the very beginning, the first thing that you mentioned in the six steps is to work on your anxiety, right? And it seemed to me, I, when I was reading through the six steps, I kept thinking, well, is this really the first step or is this kind of the last step? I mean, does it make sense to even think about working on your anxiety when you are a novice? I mean, doesn't having practice and having expertise, doesn't that naturally take care of the anxiety? It's kind of hard to tell people, hey, just relax, right? When they don't really have a lot of experience. Well, so first and foremost, I don't tell people just to relax because I agree. I don't think that's very helpful at all. But coming from a highly extroverted person like yourself, I can understand why it might make sense to, you know, let's manage the anxiety after we do these other steps. But in fact, for those who are highly anxious speakers, actually managing that anxiety is critical up front. I learned this firsthand. I taught public speaking at a community college for 14 years. The very first book I wrote, which I wrote about halfway into that tenure there, was a direct result of my students leaving class saying, Matt, that was a great class. I really learned a lot in your class. And once I figure out how to not be nervous, I look forward to putting all of those skills into practice. And so it really made me realize that we are doing a disservice when we teach at least public speaking by not helping people manage their anxiety. And I knew from my academic studies in grad school, there's a tremendous amount of research on how to help people manage anxiety in high stakes communication situations, be they planned or spontaneous. And there just weren't resources. So speaking up without freaking out was a direct result of me seeing my students graduate and not be able or comfortable to put into practice the skills that they learn. Most public speaking textbooks, by the way, spend three pages of about 400 on speaking anxiety, and that's it. So I do believe that there are things we can do to manage our anxiety such that we can be in a place where we can open ourselves up to taking the risk, to changing the mindset, to practicing. Because if you don't do that first, it's really hard to do some of the things you need to do to become a better communicator. Well, it's funny that you describe me as an extrovert because actually, I don't know whether I am or I'm not. I took this test that Susan Cain offered. I was at an event that she was speaking at and she had us all take this test and I came up as an introvert. right? <laughs> and of course, she was there speaking to a large group of people, even though she's an introvert. And I remember before I started taking business school classes, I was sort of, a, you know, more of like a wallflower, right? I would stay on the sidelines and not really speak up. But I remember my brother noticed a difference after I started going to business school classes. He's like, wow, like, look at you. You just walk up to people and start talking to them. And wow, you didn't do that before. So I like to say that business school is about helping you to become a more effective person. Do you think that we under or over-invest in what we might think of as the co-curricular aspects of our education. I mean, when you go to business school, you obviously learn about accelerated depreciation and you learn about two-sided T-tests and you learn about discounted cash flow. And then you, you learn these other things, mostly through osmosis. I think that, you know, you can have a class in communication, but a lot of it happens just through the interaction. Do you think that business schools need to be more explicit and conscious when it comes to inculcating 
these sorts of skills like communication? 100%, 110%. Yes. When you ask our graduates about what are the skills that they're relying on the most day to day, it is these skills you're talking about. It is the interpersonal communication skills. The, the reason at Stanford's business school that our interpersonal dynamics class is the most popular class and the one that people see as the most special at our institution or as one of the most special at our institution is because it's teaching skills about how to interact with others, but also how to introspect and reflect on yourself. And, and we see that the communication courses that I teach are, are very popular electives, and not just me, but others who teach, because students understand and appreciate that. And it gives a framework and an approach to doing the osmosis learning that you're talking about that really helps. I mean, part of the assignments I give my students is not just prepare for this in next class. It's go see how this works in the wild. Come back and share what happens when you paraphrase. What happens when you structure a message this way? And come back and let's talk about it. So I think these skills are very important. And I think in the more enlightened business schools are absolutely including these things in their curriculum. And I think it's, we're seeing it in medicine. We're seeing it in law. I mean, it's not just business schools where people are seeing interpersonal skills really do matter. Well, if people have to wait until they get to business school to get exposed to these techniques, I mean, that's a, a commentary on education at lower levels, right? So having taught at high school, do, do you think that we need to inculcate these skills at a much lower level? I mean, it shouldn't be the case that someone shows up to business school and then starts learning this stuff, right? Yes. No, I believe that to develop as human beings, just to, to do better in the world, that we need to be teaching and learning these skills. Uh, it was really sad and hard for me to see that the only way communication skills are really focused on and taught are as part of English curriculum. You learn the grammar, you learn the structure, mostly in foreign language classes, which I also think is a problem. I'm an old grammarian. I still believe in the Oxford comma and no prepositions at the end of sentences, but I, I know I'm a dinosaur. But the, this idea is that we should be teaching communication skills. And I'll tell you, I have a six-year-old, uh, a six-and-a-half-year-old nephew, and he is learning more about collaboration skills in first grade than some of my students learned as freshmen in high school. So I do see hope and change. I do see things happening. But I, I agree with you. We need to be teaching these skills much earlier, much earlier. Do you think that the rise of the podcast is a, I don't know, evidence that people have a deep interest in conversation, right? I mean, this is a, a format that, didn't exist 20 years ago. There were Charlie Rose show and a couple other Merv Griffin or whatever. But I mean, now you're really showing your age. If you should throw up Mike Douglas, right? Mike Douglas. Yeah. But I mean, do you think that those are generally very short conversations? Podcasts can be a bit longer. Do you think that this says something about our culture and time? I mean, are people more interested in understanding what good conversation looks like and thinking about conversation and communication as a way of learning? I think for some people, absolutely. And I think the pandemic, I mean, we all saw a spike in numbers and listenings to podcasts during the pandemic. I think there was a craving for that connection. But I also see in my teenage kids, the opposite end of this, where everything is a 30 second TikTok. And so I do think for some, there Part of what I love about podcasting, both as a podcaster and as a listener of podcasts, is there's a certain level of intimacy and connection that happens. I feel like I'm part of a conversation and that feels good. 
And I find myself self-selecting certain types of podcasts and certain people who I'm interested in. So I do think there's this connection nature that some of us have. Uh, But again, my kids, even with a podcaster in the family, they are not listening to podcasts. They are listening to or watching TikToks. So so I I don't think it's true of everybody, but certainly people are self-selecting for this approach and channel for communication. Well, why did you start the podcast? I never actually asked you this story, but how did ThinkFest Talks Market started? So it was an experiment. Stanford's Business School at the time did not have a formal podcast. They were taking lectures and turning them into what they called podcasts, but they wasn't meant to be podcasted and a few other things. And they knew that communication skills, back to a previous point, we said that a lot of our alums, a lot of people out in the world would come to the business school and, and communication was a huge draw. People wanted to learn about communication. So I had been doing communication work. I had a few videos out there that had some success. And so they said, hey, the guy who teaches about anxiety around communication might be the least anxious person we know who could do a podcast. So they asked me, and it was an experiment. And I personally was curious about it, one, because I listened to podcasts and I knew the value of them. And I saw it as a means to reach a broader audience for the business school. And so to me, it was exciting. I also try to live my life by not turning down opportunities. So I saw it as an interesting opportunity to try it. And we started really slow, but the pandemic helped us. I mean, if there's any silver lining, and I I hate to even say that because the pandemic was so horrific, people started listening to podcasts more. People realized how communication had changed fundamentally now that we're all locked down. And so we had the right content at the right time from the right institution and people began starting to listen. And so you know, the, po- the very first podcast episode came out in January of 2020. So we had a few episodes and then lockdown happened. Yeah. And I think listening to your podcast, the form is as informative as the content, right? Because you get to see modeled right before you what these good brief conversations can look like. And that's, I think, what makes it really attractive is that within 17, 18 minutes, you get to see how two people can share ideas and kind of tease things out of each other. And there's some takeaways. So I'm actually going to go back and I'm going to apply the framework analysis (laughs) to some of your podcasts now that I know about the secret sauce. Yeah. Well, we do follow one. I mean, we absolutely do. So it'll be cool for you to uncover that. But yes, no, we definitely use the structures that I talk about in the book as we interview for sure. Well, Matt, we didn't really get into all the details. There's a wonderful set of how-tos in here, some great frameworks and very specific applications towards the second half of the book. Appreciate you joining me. I hope to chat again soon. Greg, it was a true pleasure. I encourage everybody to listen to Greg's episode on Think Fast, Talk Smart. He shares some really useful insights and ideas. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.